This is Kate Chabot with SITREP. This week, what did we learn from the Chief of the Defence Staff about the future shape of the armed forces? There'll be much about low observable and stealth technologies. Electronic warfare and passive deception will be there. We will trade probably reduced physical protection for increased mobility. Why have so many countries become involved in the conflict going on in Libya? The former Middle East minister, Alistair Burt, has this warning. I think it's very dangerous, and and not just because of the NATO context, but the whole context of the fragility of a number of alliances at present. And as we near the 80th anniversary of the start of the Battle of Britain, we ask how significant was it in the wider context of the Second World War? The Chief of the Defence Staff, General Sir Nick Carter, has told MPs on the Defence Select Committee this week that threats now come from a range of actors. It is the potential for unwarranted escalation that leads to miscalculation, which we should all watch. And some of the hotspots in the world, whether it's what's happening in Syria or the Eastern Med, and Libya more specifically, could easily become something that escalates beyond control. Well, earlier this week, there were media reports of potentially large cuts to the armed forces, claims denied by the Defence Secretary Ben Wallace. General Carter told MPs that the integrated review of foreign policy, defence and security was key in determining what the government wants defence to do and should be key in determining its expenditure. So I think that's where the MOD has a massive role to play, is in making sure that that process genuinely starts with the threat, understands the risks to our country, And then the argument has to play out as that review develops. And he set out what he thought future capabilities could look like in the 2030s. We think that they will be smaller and faster because it's going to essentially be about a competition for hiding versus finding. There'll be much about low observable and stealth technologies. Electronic warfare and passive deception will be there. We will trade probably reduced physical protection for increased mobility question about warrior, of course, is interesting in that. Uh, They will include a mix of manned, unmanned and autonomous platforms. Uh, They will be integrated into ever more sophisticated networks. Um, They will have open systems architectures that enable the rapid incorporation of new capability and the rapid integration into the network. We anticipate them being much less dependent on fossil fuels Mm -hmm. for obvious reasons. And we think they will employ many more non-line-of-sight fires. Um, And here, once, of course, talking about long-range missile technology. With me now is Defence Editor of The Times, Lucy Fisher, and our Defence Analyst, Christopher Lee. Uh, Lucy, a long list of ambitious capabilities there for the 2030s and beyond. Yes, very interesting. Um, And I think it's clear that um, General Sinek Carter has been reading uh, Dominic Cummings' blog because a lot of what he said there tallied very well with the Prime Minister's chief advisor's view of defence, having uh, agile, more quick to produce, perhaps cheaper technologies uh, and less perhaps of the bulky, expensive platforms built by defence primes with very complicated long-term contracts. And Christopher, he's signalling potentially deep changes in the UK's defence capability. And also remember, it's only, what, three, four years ago, as Chief of the General Staff, General Nick Carter was rethinking how the army would look, what its shape would be, how its headquarters would work, who would be there, and what its, I suppose, its potential enemies would be. And so there's a complete rethink of where the where the where all three services are going to be, especially as we've had, for example, uh, Prime Minister Johnson's senior uh, defence advisor 
saying that the the Navy's got two aircraft carriers, which are an absolute sort of daft, daft thing to have. And Lucy, these will require substantial investment. Yes, that's right. Um, and of course, you know, I, I think we know that the government of uh, the day is currently committed to maintaining the 2% of GDP defence spending pledge. Uh, the manifesto also included um, a 0.5% above inflation increase annually. But of course, you know, if the uh, economic forecasts about the British economy in light of the coronavirus pandemic pandemic are right. That could yet mean a severe real terms cut um, to the defence budget in coming years, even if it maintains that 2% level. So uh, to me, it's um, interesting and um, in some ways positive to hear the head of the military talking about the need to invest in lots of futuristic technologies that are coming down the line. But I think we also need to be aware that there's going to have to be, you know, pretty severe cuts potentially to balance the books already, as well as invest in these um, newer pieces of equipment and software. And Kate, General Carter was saying in the, in the, in the Commons to the Defence Committee, we think we, we can be assured about 2.6 increase. We've got the Chancellor saying somebody's got to help pay for the government expenditure, i.e. the taxpayers' expenditure, on trying to counter virus, implications of the virus. Next year's so-called Defence Review is going to be looking at different aspects of, of why you have a defensive view in the first place. And it could be that the, the opinion is, is sharpening up in Downing Street that in some ways this has nothing to do with the Defence Ministry. It's all to do with where government wants the British responsibilities to be, let's say in five years' time, ten years' time. And then they'll go to the Defence Ministry and say, right, what do you want to have to actually sort of guarantee that we can actually put those policies I I into play. Yeah, and Lucy, in light of what Chris was saying, how will Defence try to ensure their voice will be heard clearly? They've obviously um, played a pretty canny game by um, uh, inviting Dominic Cummings to come for this uh, personal tour of Special Forces bases, um, the research facility at Porton Down, the Defence Intelligence base at Witten in Cambridgeshire. Clearly, they want to show him the importance of all these units, what they can do, he obviously wants to get an up-close view of those capabilities without the filter of military chiefs. But obviously they want to get their, um, their argument across. But I think Christopher is also right. There is a wider acknowledgement in government that threats can come in different forms, including um, you know, health pandemics. There will be a lot of focus on that going forward, as well as you know, economic issues. I think you know, Tobias Elwood made clear that we see China and other nations perhaps using new levers to sort of apply pressure. And just on the subject of procurement, uh, General Carter also received this warning from the Conservative MP and former Minister Marc Francois. Can we just make a plea to you? You are the professional head of the armed forces. Please nip back to the department and ask them to sort their bloody selves out, because if not, Cummings is going to come down there and sort you out his own way, and it's, yeah. you won't like it. Yeah, it's interesting, Lucy, you mentioned that, that those tours of uh, defence sites that's planned. I mean, is it going to work? Does Dominic Cummings really need to be won over? Well, he does, because what we know about him is he is a disruptor. He's a maverick. He's very opinionated and he's not afraid to shake things up. So I think we shouldn't be under any illusion about his willingness to, to you know, really institute radical moves. You know, we've had other, you know, reports in the past week that have been, you know, pretty worrying, particularly to the army. The suggestion in the Sunday Times that 20,000 soldiers could be cut, taking the service down from about uh, 74,000 at the minutes to 55,000. 
Now, that level was denied by um, General Sinek Carter. But still, I think we know from his past statements on this issue, you know, he thinks the future of the army is, you know, specialisms. It's, it's precision, small teams, it's strike brigades. So I think it is likely we will see a cut to the British army, not least as the Conservative Party dropped in their manifesto for the general election in December, the commitment to keep the service at 82,000, the previous target. All right, Lucy Fisher, Defence Editor of The Times, thank you for your time today. Christopher, stay with us. Now, the United Nations Secretary-General Antonio Guterres says foreign interference in Libya has reached levels never seen before. He told the Security Council that the conflict has entered a new phase and time was running out. Libya is home to hundreds of thousands of displaced people and is critically one of the routes that migrants take to get to Europe. 90% of people crossing the Mediterranean depart from Libya. Christopher Lee has this sit-rep background to events there. Well, the modern story of Libya begins in 1956. Oil was discovered and Libya became super rich, Africa's biggest oil reserve. In 1969, in a bloodless coup, Colonel Gaddafi became leader. He was eccentric, but he had oil and the people had free health care and education, so that was okay. But oil prices in the 1980s reduced Libya's income and links to terrorism and the Soviet Union resulted in US oil companies pulling out of investments. By 2000, American-Libyan relations were re-established, for the moment anyway. In 2011, the year of the Arab Spring throughout the Middle East, rebel forces with outside help attacked Gaddafi's troops, who were accused of war crimes, and the United Nations called for a no-fly zone. Partly led by a British plan, NATO forces bombed Libya. Gaddafi was assassinated without trial on the 20th of October 2011, but the war went on. Libya split into groups. At the Mediterranean west of the country is the capital Tripoli. This is the seat of the international government of national accord, the real government. At the eastern end of the coast is Tobruk, where Libyan rebel MPs backed General Khalifa Haftar, the leader of the still rebel army. General Haftar wants to be president, but the United Nations will not recognise a military leader. He has the backing of President Putin, who believes Haftar has the oil. So... Haftar also has 200 Russian mercenaries to support him. Against this is Turkey, who has sent troops to back up the United Nations recognised government in Tripoli. Libya is awash with mercenaries and arms bazaars. Another civil war in the making? Could be. Former President Obama says Britain is partly to blame for the treacherous mess. He says that the then Prime Minister David Cameron failed to anticipate the inevitable chaos once Gaddafi was removed. Well, the former Conservative MP Alistair Burt was the Minister for the Middle East until last year and has visited Libya several times. I asked him for his response to recent events there. I think what's been quite extraordinary is the the way in which the pushback against General Heftar has been so effective and changed the balance of the negotiations for uh, for, for what uh, should be some sort of resolution to this long-standing and very painful conflict. Um, I think the balance of power seems to have shifted, but it's essential that diplomatic activity gets involved to bring this all to an end. 
does seem to get more and more complicated all the time. France has pulled out of a NATO-led anti-smuggling patrol in the Mediterranean, accusing Turkey of repeatedly violating the arms embargo in Libya, a claim Turkey denies. How dangerous are the tensions between France and Turkey, who are NATO allies over Libya? I think it's very dangerous, and, and not just because of the NATO context, but the whole context of the fragility of a number of alliances at present. It is to the benefit of Europe's enemies that the EU is put under strain and NATO is under strain. Uh, the only people that the disputes within NATO between France and Turkey benefits are those outside. Now, Turkey has been assertive for some time. Its decision uh, to attack in northern Syria uh, against the advice of allies, its purchase of the S-400s from Russia, all this has demonstrated a very assertive Turkey um, and how that is then compensated for within a NATO, which is already under pressure because of the, the failure of leadership of the United States. Um, it, this makes it all very much more awkward for all the other parties. It is essential that France and Turkey as two NATO allies do resolve their differences um, and that will take some diplomatic effort both from them and from their partners. And what are France and Turkey's strategic interests in the area? They're mixed. Um, everyone has an interest in stability uh, and it's not unnatural for people to have looked at Libya over the past few years and found a dispute which is uh, after the fall of Gaddafi between politicians who cannot resolve their dif differences, between the militias who expected some recompense for removing Gaddafi, who see an oil-rich country uh, and can't get their hands on all the resources that they need uh, and the various fracturing of fa factions within Libya has meant that the instability has attracted the attention of those outside. Egypt uh, on one side, Algeria on another uh, are both very anxious about a Libya that falls into complete disrepair. Now into this France has economic interests as well as the interests of stability of migration across the Mediterranean as does Italy. And Turkey saw an opportunity for its assertion in the eastern Mediterranean, which is bound up domestically, politically, for the, the president of Turkey. So it's a complex situation. Both had reasons to support various interests. But the instability of Libya helps no one and certainly didn't help Hassan Salami, the hardworking UN representative who just could not get the parties to agree on a path that was the best way for the people of Libya, who seem to be the ones forgotten in all this equation. And in that light, what can the UK government do? I think the UK government can best support international efforts. It should use its power at the Security Council to support whoever becomes the new UN representative for Libya. It should work with European partners, you know, particularly the new German presidency of the EU, because it will be extremely anxious to settle matters between European colleagues, not least France and Italy, that have had a different view on how to resolve this. The UK's diplomatic sway is still strong. It doesn't have any military engagement in this issue, unlike others involved, but its diplomatic power is great. But it should certainly add that... Uh, diplomatic clout to those who are seeking a, a, a diplomatic solution and use its influence amongst those in Libya to, to seek to do that. Yeah, you say it doesn't have any military engagement. Britain did in the past with Operation Elemy. Was it right to intervene so dramatically with the benefit of hindsight? I was there at the time and the, there's much... Uh, dispute and discussion about that. We will never know what would have happened in Benghazi if Gaddafi's troops had been 
uh, allowed to to continue uh, on their way there. Um, we know enough about Gaddafi's rule in Libya to have been very uncertain about the situation. Um, and I, I don't believe it was wrong to seek to save lives there. But the narrative has become changed. The narrative has conveniently become that France and the United Kingdom intervened in relation to Gaddafi and then walked away. Uh, that is just not true. Uh, again, I know because I was there. I went back to Libya a number of times with diplomats. There were elections. A new government was formed. Libya was very anxious to keep uh, foreign boots from being on its own soil, so there was no military intervention by outsiders. It was left to Libya and Libya's politicians to resolve matters, but they couldn't. Between the politicians and the differing militias, it wasn't possible to gain the stability, and therefore the, uh, the, the fragile peace and new democracy that emerged couldn't bear the weight. It's a long answer to the short answer to your question. And the short answer to your question is, we don't know. And we'll, you never know about intervention. But experience is telling us that intervention or non-intervention, the results can sometimes be the same. And it really does depend on local actors and great determination from serious powers to resolve their differences, to put their interests perhaps to one side for the interests of those who are the ultimate victims, those are the people who live in a country who deserve far better than the endless conflict they seem to suffer. That was Alistair Burt. This is Zitrap. Now, military personnel working on coronavirus mobile testing units around the country have so far enabled half a million tests to be carried out. Tim Cooper has been given special access to 1st Battalion Irish Guards to see what goes into making a successful day of testing. The car park of Tadworth Leisure Centre in Surrey is empty. With the arrival of a panel van signals a 20-minute build, which will turn this into a fully functioning coronavirus testing centre. 1st Battalion Irish Guards are manning the site. Guardsman Lewis Booth explains how the testing process works. So once they come through the front gate, they'll go to this stand where they'll get the test and explained. Once that, they'll park up and take the test, and if they need any help, they'll ask for help off us. And once that's done, they'll go drive round to the other, the next tent, hand in their test and get signed off before being able to leave. The team work quickly. Already experienced at this, as Lance Sergeant Stephen Doyle tells me. We're used to it now. Uh, we can get it pretty much set up in like 15, 20 minutes. So uh, this is our fourth time. So we're used to it now. And what do you feel about helping out in this way? Well, it's a national crisis, in it? So, you know, it's not exactly hard, you know what I mean? With coronavirus testing people, it's a national crisis and obviously the British public need our help. This is going to be the exit uh, as the public exfil out of the site. Last Corporal Patrick Geraghty. We'll be dropping off the tests to whoever's going to be in this position. We'll obviously collect the tests, uh, make sure they're all scanned up so then they can receive their results within the next one to two days. And how do you feel personally about being involved in this? Uh, proud. Um, you know, I get to serve uh, the public um, within my battalion. You know, we are the face of the British Army and, you know, we like to help as much as we can. Tests are lined up out of the sun, They're underneath the van actually. And if it gets too hot, they can be put into travel fridges. Throughout the day, couriers come and rush the completed tests to the nearest laboratory for processing. In charge here, Second Lieutenant Max Brewer. I think we're incredibly pleased and look, we all join the army because we want to serve our country. However that may be, it doesn't always have to be on operations. You know, um, 
we are in a privileged position where we can do that day in, day out. And I think that um, my guardsmen have really risen to that challenge and um, they've thoroughly enjoyed it so far. In just 20 minutes, everything is set up. Two tents, trestle tables, signs, crates with testing kits in, cones to guide the cars. PPE is donned and the queue of around 20 cars can be dealt with. Inside there's a manual, tell you everything to do. Pretty straightforward, pretty easy. If you're struggling at any point, put on your hazards, beep your horn, we'll come over and help you. It's the last day for the Irish Guards here, before a two-day rest period, and then another six days of testing at another location in southern England. Tim Cooper reporting there. Now, the government is considering a report into Huawei that could lead to a change in its policy over the Chinese firm's role in the UK's telecoms networks. The report by the National Cybersecurity Centre is looking at the impact of planned new US sanctions on its products. On Monday, the Prime Minister said he did not want the country to be vulnerable to a high-risk state vendor. Huawei has said it is independent. Victor Zhang, Vice President of Huawei, has given evidence to the Science and Technology Select Committee. Huawei had been working with the UK government in the very, very early stage to be very open for addressing the security issue. Uh, we worked closely with NCIC to establish the Cybersecurity Evaluation Center in Banbury. Uh, that is a very big uh, step more forward to show you Huawei's transparency. Nigel Inkster is senior advisor at the International Institute for Strategic Studies and the former director of operations at MI6. If they implement full-blooded sanctions, the implications for Huawei would be very serious and potentially even terminal in respect of their aspirations to be the global leader in 5G. Huawei have innovated uh, a great deal, but they are still very heavily dependent upon two key areas of input, that is uh, advanced microchips and software. If the United States were to prevent Huawei from purchasing any equipment that had any amount of US IP in it, then I think Huawei would would struggle to maintain the momentum that they've built up. In terms of the UK, earlier in the year, the government placed a cap on its market share in mobile and full fibre fixed line broadband networks and excluded its involvement in the most sensitive parts of 5G, known as the core. Has it been bounced into this review, as some claim, by the US? Well, I mean, the UK is in a very difficult position. Uh, We're kind of between the devil and the deep blue sea. There are two major competing uh, technology powers in the world, the United States and China, and the UK is kind of caught between them. We don't have our own comparable capabilities, and it's unlikely that any medium-sized country ever would be able to. Uh, So we are kind of stuck. I think at the beginning of the year, it looked as if an acceptable compromise might have been found by restricting Huawei to the edge rather than the core of the network and limiting the percentage uh, of inputs that Huawei could provide. But a number of things have happened since then. Firstly, Sino-US relations have undergone a dramatic deterioration. And if the United States were to apply full sanctions uh, to Huawei, realistically, Huawei's ability to provide the UK with the kind of 5G services that uh, that we want would um, come into question. The fact is that uh, 
the United States has, uh, so to speak, dropped the ball on 5G. There is no US company that um, has the ability to manufacture the full range of capabilities needed to put together a 5G network. It's a kind of Sputnik moment, if you like, for the United States after years and years of uh, taking for granted uh, technology dominance across the spectrum. They now face uh, uh, a challenge to that and are reacting accordingly. So we're caught in the middle of this. You know, the United Kingdom is, so to speak, roadkill. If you were to give the government an advice on how they should play this situation, what would it be? I think it's very difficult because um, the situation has moved uh, very rapidly in, in, in the last few months. And I think China is, is itself making um, it very difficult to um, steer a middle course because they're now saying, in effect, you're either with us or against us and there's no kind of middle ground. That being the case, it's very difficult for the United Kingdom not to opt to go with the USA, given um, you know shared uh, history values, um, etc. But there are risks in that, because if the USA does implement the sanctions that they've threatened to do, I think there is a risk that we might find ourselves, so to speak, on the wrong side of a new digital divide and caught up in a a cycle of innovation decline. That was Nigel Inkster. This week, 80 years ago, the Royal Air Force took on the Luftwaffe and won. The Battle of Britain was fought in the skies above Britain during the summer and autumn of 1940. Squadron leader Geoffrey Wellham, who died in 2018 at the age of 96, was the youngest Spitfire pilot to fly in the Battle of Britain after joining the RAF at the age of 18. He was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. Here he is being interviewed in 2010. What matters is that during the Battle of Britain we stopped them and we denied the Germans their aim. And for the first time they realised that they could be beaten. Well, Rosie Layden spoke to Group Captain Patrick Tootle, Secretary of the Battle of Britain Memorial Trust at Capel Le Fern, and asked him how the local population reacted to the start of the battle. I, I think it was only the frightened came when the Blitz started, I think. Obviously the coastal towns which were bombed early on in the battle, probably people were, were scared there, but probably certain people said it was the best air display we've had, sort of thing. 80 years later, do you think we can look back and, and still say that, that the Battle of Britain was that important, remains that important to us today? I think it was pivotal in the history of World War II, really. Uh, it was the first time that the Luftwaffe or the Nazis had been defeated. The Luftwaffe said it was a draw because they were withdrawn, but to us it was a victory. They did not. The invasion didn't come. On the 17th of September, Hitler said, it's getting very late now to cross the Channel, autumn gales and all the rest. But he always had his focus on the east, so he said, I'll postpone Sea Lion, and this was after the disastrous events of the Luftwaffe on the 15th of September. Christopher Lee is still with us. Christopher, what is your analysis of the importance of the Battle of Britain? This was the first time, really, that the British civilians got involved in a battle since 1066, the Battle of Hastings. The Germans brought the battle into these islands. And it began tomorrow, 80 years ago, and it went on right into October, the end of October, in sort of four stages. First, there was sort of beating up on the channel, channel ports and the shipping. Then the Midlands, 
then the airfields, southeast airfields. Herman Goring, who ran the Air Force, is a note to his commanders in his diaries in the 3rd of September, 1940. And he says to them, I've got a message for you all. We are on the brink of victory. Next attack will be London itself. And that's exactly what happened. But there was a problem. And there was the bad weather that was coming. And the bad weather, you can't continue the daylight bombings. And then suddenly, one morning in uh, October, the German squadrons simply did not come back. And there were terrible losses amongst pilots, weren't there? 500, between five and 600 RAF command pilots. Other commands, you know, such as the Canadians, etc., a thousand dead. And of course, the Germans, they lost two, two and a half thousand people. But the biggest loss were, of course, the civilians. Something like 40-odd thousand civilians were killed. And that's in a war which, in this country, 67,000 died. If the Germans had operated sea line, which was to come to the United Kingdom, and we had no air force, the Americans couldn't have landed in the United Kingdom to plan what become the D-Day landing, and therefore victory in Europe. So you could argue that the fact that the Germans didn't turn up that morning meant that the war would still go on and that the United Kingdom and the future American ally were going to win the war. And finally... Christopher, I bet you can't guess what that is. <laughs> no. Well, it's not you. Come and tell me. A little bit of news. It is the sound of ravens at the Tower of London. and They'll be heard by the public once again as it opens for the first time tomorrow since lockdown with a new one-way route to ensure social distancing. Can you imagine a raven doing a one-way route? <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine a raven doing anything you want it to. That is all from me, Kate Chabot, and from Christopher Lee and all of our guests. Don't forget, you can always get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. While you're online, why not subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode in future at bfbs.com slash SITREP. For now, though, thanks for listening. Bye-bye. 